Okay, welcome everyone to post-CPI dissection, macro, markets, and more with myself, Rosanna, and Ahan, founder of Prometheus Research. Now, when I first saw Prometheus Research, the first thing I thought of was the Titan God of Fire. Prometheus is best known in Greek mythology for defying the gods by stealing fire from them and giving it to humanity in the form of technology, knowledge, and more generally civilization. Well, here we are with Ahan, who is giving us knowledge. He has the most amazing, unique approach to figuring out how stuff works rather than analyzing data. Now, he explained his processes to me. I was blown away. I am so impressed and honored to be here today with him. He understands the underlying mechanisms. It's actually quite rare nowadays. We have a lot of, you know, people who analyze data, but not as many that research in the way Ahan does. When I read his most recent Prometheus research substacks, he was so in line with the CPI. His data is amazing. And I am so proud to introduce Ahan. Ahan, welcome. Please tell us about your amazing Prometheus research. Hey, Rosanna, so great to be here and thank you for being here with me. Um, that's, that's such a kind introduction you made. Um, I will only try to live up to it. Um, so with regards to Prometheus. So Prometheus is um, very much in the in the spirit that you've described of taking the best tools that we have, you know, on the institutional side and giving them to the everyday investor so that they can make, you know, sound investment decisions for a given macro environment. As you said, we focus on macro, right? And we do it in a systematic fashion, right? And what, what I mean by that is we, we spend our time understanding how the macro economy works and putting that together into rules that can inform portfolio decisions and create good portfolios for given macro environments. Is that a good start? That's an excellent start. Thank you so much. So could you please tell us what led us to the situation we're in right now? Uh, you were discussing with me about money growing faster than underlying labor and capital and what happened during COVID. Could you go over that for us? A brief history, please. Yeah, sure. I, I think um, before we delve into the specifics of today, I think um, a general template is a good idea. So kind of how we think about the world um, at Prometheus is that there are in, in the economy there are two different kind of channels working at the same time always, right? So you have the, the real economy, which is basically just labor and capital, right? And on top of that real economy, you have a monetary system. Now that monetary system is essentially a bunch of social contracts between various parties, right? So you can think of government money as just a contract between the government and um, the public, right? Or you can think of borrowing as a, as a contract between lender and borrower. Now, the thing about 
the monetary system, which is just made of these social contracts, um, is that it allows you to grow faster than what, you know, just labor and capital by themselves can do at any particular point in time because you're able to borrow for future income to be able to improve your productivity um, and produce more over time. Now, what also happens as a feature of all of these mechanisms is that you have a, a tendency of the monetary system to grow way faster than the underlying capacity and labor. So that creates a situation where, you know, sometimes conditions in the financial system can be far, you know, can grow much faster or contract much faster than what's happening with the underlying dynamics of, you know, and the productive capacity of the economy. And that's really what the business cycle is in our view, right? The business cycle is basically, um, you have self-reinforcing dynamics which allow for more credit and money to be created relative to an existing amount of assets. And at some point they get too stretched and they need to come back to where things are in terms of labor and capital. Now, taking that template and kind of putting it into context today, I think where we are is that during COVID, in the depths of COVID, you had you had companies suffering and output completely shut down because of lockdowns and such. And in response to that, the government still could use the monetary channel to keep things alive, right? So what they did was they went out and they created both income, right, in, in the form of in, in income injections to the real economy. And they also created financial assets, right? Or they swapped out financial assets and created liquidity on the balance sheets of you know various entities. As a result, you had this injection of monetary stimulus without any rise in kind of capacity or labor or things like that. And now what we're working through is the fact that we had this large monetary impulse from both the monetary authority and fiscal authority. And our productive capacity hasn't increased commensurate with that, the result of which is inflation. So if you think about where we are today, right, we need to kind of resolve this excess of capital and liquidity relative to an existing stock of labor and assets, right? And the only way this can this can be resolved only in you know probably three ways, right? You either need to have a significant contraction in the asset and liability creation in the private sector, right? Or you need to, which, which will impact asset, asset markets pretty badly, or you need to have a contraction in the amount of money which is out there, right? And that that's very hard to do because once you create money, it's very hard to corrode the value of money, right? Or at least reduce the outstanding stock of money which keeps turning over to create transactions. So if I think about what's happening today, the only way to really erode the amount of outstanding stock of money is to be able to increase taxation. And we're very much going in the opposite direction. The last and final way which we can probably do this to create kind of like an equilib equilibrium kind of effect is to have an erosion in the value of the money relative to the amount of stuff out there. And that kind of creates what, what you know everyone calls inflation, right? That's what inflation is. We have an erosion in the value of the dollar, right? And what it purchases. And that's really just a function of the relative mismatch between these two. 
So that's kind of, I think, broad strokes where we are today. Thank you. Very nice explanation of that. Um, now, it seems we are in a monetary inflation. There has been excess money infused, injected into the economy. And now the Fed is trying to fight this excess money with rising rates. And we cannot fight inflation that way, correct? Could you please explain that? You, you can and you can't, right? So now what, what the Fed, so the Fed and Bursley, they've, they've acted through two different channels, right? So the Fed went out and they, 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 they reduced interest rates, obviously, but they also did quantitative easing, right? Which only, for, for, for various reasons, ends up being only uh, concentrated to asset markets. It doesn't usually filter in too much to the, the real economy, right? But on the flip side, the Treasury went out and injected huge amounts of income into the economy. Now, what the issue is with that mismatch is that via quantitative tightening and the raising of interest rates, we can reduce the amount of, so through the discounting of assets and also through the removal of liquidity, we can impair credit creation and asset price growth, right? So we can hold those two things. But when it comes to what the fiscal authorities did, they can't really take that money away. So if you think about it from the perspective of what does, you know, money is the closest thing that commands power. So if I go out and I try to raise interest rates, it's not going to impact the amount of dollars that you and I can exchange. So, for example, if I come to you and I say, hey, I have a dollar, what are you going to give me back? A dollar, right? Um, so what we have is we have a situation where the only way to really reduce that stock of injected money into the economy, which is circulating, um, is to actually raise taxes. And that is just not something that people have a very large appetite for in this environment. In fact, uh, they're going in the opposite direction of trying to, you know, re-stimulate even more. Um, so I think that we can we can cause, you know, a contraction in inflation through monetary policy. But the issue is that the balance of the two is probably, you know, skewed towards way more destruction of like financial assets and borrowing rather than the ability to be able to tamp down on the amount of money supply increase that we've seen. Thank you. Uh, so I know we discussed that there are also drawbacks and potential consequences of the rising rates. And I know you mentioned that that causes the real demand to come down so that the output that companies need to produce will be reduced as well. Thus, they need to lay off and have less workers. Uh, could you explain that process? please, regarding nominal and real demand? Yeah, so, you know, like, like we talked about with the, you know, at the outset, there's a, there's a monetary system and there's a real economy, right? And they, they both obviously move in tandem and have a lot of linkages. But what the, the capacity of nominal growth currently, based off the dynamics that we've just discussed, it, the, the, the potential for nominal growth to remain elevated is very high, right? Now, what happens when you have large amounts of nominal growth, right, relative to real growth is you have very large, you have inflation. Right? And what the, that inflation does is it, it erodes through the investment channel. So if I go out and I have, you know, large amounts of investment, like large amounts of inflation like I have today, 
the incremental dollar that I spend today generates less and less output in the future, right? That lower output also results in, in lower real incomes and lower real spending, right? And at some point, you create these self-reinforcing kind of dynamics of, okay, inflation is causing this erosion in real spending. That real spending eventually gets to the point where, you know, we're getting closer and closer to where it, it reduces the need for, you know, very large amounts of real production, right? At which point you, 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 you create... This, this environment where nominal spending continues to stay elevated, but at the same time, you have real spending going into contractionary territory. Um, the, so what the Fed is probably doing is that they're, they're trying to create a contraction in you know, the lending and borrowing in the economy to be able to, to cause a contraction in, in total nominal spending. But given the dynamics of where we are, we'll probably have a contraction first of real spending as opposed to, you know, outright nominal spending, just given the level of nominal spending we have. And that's going to be a really difficult kind of environment. It does sound very difficult. Now, a lot of people in Wall Street or, you know, in trading use the word demand destruction. Do you use that word? And if you do, in what context do you use that word? And how does it relate to the situation you're discussing? Right. So, so demand destruction, like it, it is, it is a real thing, right? But I think that it, it's relevant to think about what kind of demand destruction we're talking about. So, we're we're talking about if we're talking about nominal demand destruction, right? It's going to be a lot harder to get to a point of nominal demand destruction relative to real demand destruction. And so, if we actually go out and look at, excuse me, if we go out and look at you know, production and spending across various parts of the economy. On a real basis, there are many, many parts of the economy that are actually, you know, in contractionary territory. So on that basis, you could say there's a degree of demand destruction taking place. But on the flip side, if I go and look at nominal activity, which is just really a function of the amount of, of you know, money supply and things like that that we have available in the economy today, those numbers still stay extremely elevated. Now, with regards to the Fed, right, what they need to be able to do is they need to be able to generate an adequate, you know, demand destruction in air quotes to be able to have lower nominal demand, right? And the only way through which they have to be able to do this right now is through a contraction in asset markets, right? So you need to be able to contract assets, which are somebody else's liabilities, to the extent that you actually have this lower kind of demand dynamic. Um, and that is way harder than, you know, having just a real growth, growth contraction because you need to basically cause the, the, the asset side of things relative to just the income side of things to contract adequately. So we're probably going to be, you know, in this environment where we're trying to erode nominal demand for a while. Thank you for explaining that. Now, you shared with me, and I hope we're able to attach this chart, uh, where you compare stagflationary nominal growth with disinflationary real growth. And in a stagflationary nominal growth on your chart, which I have to say is excellent, it's a great chart, it speaks of weak real growth, as you've said, high inflation, which we see today we have, and tightening liquidity, 
which we know we're in. And it compares that to the stable real growth and falling inflation and rising liquidity. What type of assets excel in this environment versus the stable real growth? And what patterns have you seen there? Uh, um, yeah, I think some, some context was important there, right? So if you think about what most investors have seen over their careers and even over the look back that they've had the opportunity to kind of study, right? So most traditional data sets that are available to most people start in, you know, around between 80 and 1984. So 1980 and 1984. And that period, right, um, was past the, you know, one of the most, the, the highest, the, a secular peak in rates and inflation. So when, when you, when you look at the, the environment, most people have this belief about how stocks, bonds, commodities, and, you know, inflation edges, gold, how all these things should behave. But what I've often said is that that's not a function of the feature. It's not, it's not a feature of the asset classes. It's a feature of sample selection. So what that, what that means is that we went through a period where interest rates year after year came in lower and lower and lower. We had a situation where as a result, you had higher credit creation, more liquidity, and also a good productivity backdrop, all of which came together to create what, we're, you know, what we call a disinflationary real growth environment, which is highly conducive to stock performance and in the times it's not conducive to stock performance, it's conducive to bond performance because you have rates coming lower and inflation coming lower on a secular basis. So now when you've gone out and you've kind of trained either your models or you've trained yourself, whichever one it is, um, you, you've gone out and you've selected a sample where there was, on, there was only one kind of undercurrent. Now, on the flip side, if you go and look at, say, the, you know, the period from 1965 to... Um, call it 1980, which was the peak, the, or at least the, the, the first peak in interest rates before, before they cut and then, you know, re-raised. Um, what you will see is that the, the performance of asset classes is almost the mirror opposite of what we've seen so far, right? Or at least over the last 40 years, which is, at the, uh, and I might not have these numbers exactly correct, but it'll, it'll, I think they'll be adequately illustrative. Over, you know, that 15-ish year period from 65 through to 80, you had probably about 2% annualized returns for stocks and bonds, with both of them having volatilities north of 15%, right? That's 2% every year without, and that's not excess returns, that's not over cash, that's without, with, with cash included in them, and not you know, in excess of inflation in any way. So you, your real returns were horrible. On the flip side, commodities and gold will sell assets during this environment. So I think the, 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 the major takeaway is that if we continue to stay on this path that we're on, and it looks highly likely that we'll stay there, this environment is so dramatically different from anything we've seen in the past, or at least the recent past, that you, we, really, we kind of need to be very prepared to think about things very differently from how we're used to allocating and investing over the last 40 years. Thank you. 
Um, now, I'd like to ask you about your Prometheus research. Uh, you did mention to me when we spoke that your program, your algorithm program is able to give you data um, each day. Could you please tell us how that works and how it's able to give you expected returns for the various asset classes and how many different asset or commodity classes are you able to see on a daily basis at once? Right. Um, so we, the, the way we do things is we, we, we systematically, so all these things that we, we, we we're discussing, we, we systematically kind of track each one of these things, both in terms of what's happening in the, in, in the economy. So, you know, we have a very good picture of real GDP on a day-to-day -day basis as new data comes out. So, you know, incrementally as new data comes out, we're kind of feeding it in into, okay, this is how it marginally impacts real GDP, how it impacts and, you know, we can look at various components. So, you know, for example, we did get CPI data today and we can talk a little bit more about the CPI data maybe in a bit, but um, we can basically on an incremental basis just keep getting updates almost every day of, okay, the, we, we receive average hourly earnings. How does that feed into personal income? What does personal income contribute to consumption? How does that feed into GDP? And so as a result, we, we just have this kind of incremental process where, where we're updating what's happening with the economy, you know, as real time as possible. And then on the, on the other side, we're also, we have, you know, proprietary way of, you know, regime recognition, which is basically looking at what are markets pricing? Um, you know, so you have, we, we, we look at three particular um, macro factors, which is basically growth, that's real growth, inflation and liquidity. And we can explain uh, what the liquidity component is, but we're talking about funding liquidity, right? And those, you know, those come together to create various economic conditions. Those are the big drivers of what's happening in the economy at any given point in time. And we can, using what we understand about markets and market implied pricing, we're able to estimate, okay, this is the probability of the current environment we're in, which we likely will be in today and tomorrow. And we can make decisions for, okay, Based off this, we can look through all the historical data we have going back to like 1965, right? And and say, during these types of environments, how do assets typically trade? What can we expect, right? And that creates kind of a map for, okay, we, we know that we're in a, so today, for example, we know that we're in a stagflationary nominal growth environment, which is different from stagflation out, right? We know we're in a stagflationary nominal growth environment with, you know, tightening liquidity conditions, and what can we expect from various asset classes? You know, on 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 this basis, and so it's it's kind of like what you would do intuitively as a person, but there's a lot more rigor built in by being systematic and being able to do this. You know, over a day on a daily basis over many many decades. Very nice, thank you. Now we are in a period of removing liquidity very restrictive monetary policy, all at the same time while we're, the Fed is raising rates and probably most likely 75 basis points. And we're gonna to get to the CPI and, and the Fed meeting um, shortly. But before we get to that, I wanna ask you about your Prometheus research and based upon the data you received, how were your allocations in quarter one, quarter two, and now quarter three? Right. So. Um, so we, we, we came into the year, um, 
right you know we, we we initially had this kind of phase where we weren't so sure or so all of this is systematic in the sense of okay we've netted all this out and you know it's not so much a discretionary approach we have a, a, we have all this stuff netted out algorithmically right and as a result we came into the year extremely bullish or at least starting january extremely bullish on commodities right and q1 was probably where we were the most aggressive on commodities. We had short, started to short some equity sectors, um, but you know you, the degree of stagflationary nominal growth, at least to us, wasn't as apparent as it eventually became in Q2. So we were selectively short various equities, um, and so, and you know we kind of played around with you know, um, going long short equities every now and again based on some other technical factors, but. The, the major theme for us in Q1 was definitely, you know, being very aggressive on commodities. Now, going into Q2, that's when, you know, we, we kind of got a pickup in, okay, this is definitely an environment that is going to be really bad for equities because of growth, inflation, and liquidity. So the combination of those things is likely to just be kryptonite for equities and credit. You know? So something like high yield, HYG, something like that. Um, and we continue to think that we're very much fundamentally in that kind of dynamic, though arguably a lot less than Q2. And then, you know, Q3 has been much more challenging for us. Um, you know, we've, we've had kind of, uh, we, we've had this kind of resurgence and, oh, you know, nominal growth is okay and things like that in, in market kind of narrative speak. And, you know, you also have kind of mechanically some kind of flows that need to be reallocated because there's, you know, probably more attractive yields at various levels. But we've been kind of consistent over Q2 and Q3 of, uh, uh, over Q3 of shorting treasuries. And that's kind of how we, we went into the CPI print as well. Um, you know, on a, on a forward looking basis with the, the impacts of tightening liquidity, uh, are, are very significant. Right. And I, I think that this is one of the things that we need to grasp because yes, over say a five year period, two year period, mid 10 year period, you could be in, this stagflationary kind of environment that everyone is very mindful and worried about. Um, but on the flip side, you can also have these bouts of deflation and things like that. And the current setup we're seeing is that yes, from you know a first derivative kind of standpoint, you have very high inflation and you have um, you know you have weakening growth, which we think is going to continue to get worse on a real basis. Um, but you have this this liquidity drain that is mostly being driven by the Fed. With with regards to the Treasury, it's just that they've become less accommodative, and that matters on the margin. But the Fed is actively sucking out liquidity from financial markets and raising interest rates. The the combination of which is it's kryptonite for any asset. It's not it's not it's not it's it, there's a there's a dispersion in terms of it will there's some assets it's better for and some assets it's worse for. Right, but when it comes to the the mix of assets, we think that this tightening liquidity thing is such a dominant kind of force that, for us at least, you know, it's going to be very very hard currently for most assets to outperform cash. And then, you know, on the flip side, if you're more active, it's actually probably more attractive to be shorting things rather than, you know, going long things. And and that's kind of where we're at. You know, we've been shorting equities and treasuries. Um, that's really what you know our theme. So today, that's been a that's been a pretty good day based off the CPI, and we can talk about how we went into the CPI, what we're thinking about the future of CPI. But you know, going yeah, into, yeah, going into CPI, we were kind of really negative 
on we were shorting treasuries ahead of it we probably keep holding it till the end of the week but um yeah that's that's kind of where we think and you know the dollar is probably an attractive expression as well in this environment and that's been you know a fantastic winner as well where were you at the beginning of the year i should have met you then <laughs> i love your approach long commodities that's very smart they really took off from ag to metals everything in quarter one so fantastic uh, research there so yes cpi that is the report of the day yeah. and as we saw we came in slightly cooler but it's still highly highly inflated could you please talk about that i see your research you you basically called it you knew this was coming so i'm surprised you're not surprised at all so please tell us what you had coming into this obviously you had good insight and um and what you saw today and what your thoughts are regarding the current cpi report now that we have the actual numbers yeah so the cpi report was, was was really interesting at least to me i guess i'm a bit of a data nerd obviously so it was interesting to me i'm not sure it was interesting to many people but um you know we had a big surprise and it was it was to the extent that it was you know binary surprise like the consensus actually had deflation this month and we had you know and we have we actually had inflation this month um so where did that stem from right going into the print so we have a cpi model that's actually pretty good it does a really good job of telling us what the likely next print is going to be but you know like all of these things i i will caveat all of this by saying that we like at prometheus we don't trade prints that's not what how we do things we we try to trade the cycle so we do obviously have timing indicators and things like that but we try to stay on the right side of things going into a print because we know that there's going to be consistent pressure in a particular direction and we try to stay with that with regards to actually forecasting cpi the mm -hmm. reason we mm -hmm. we do that or you know other major data prints is to basically understand our risk going into the event right um now we what we saw with this particular print is that you had you had a couple of things you had so consensus expected cpi to decelerate on a headline basis so come in i think about negative 10 bits and to accelerate on a core basis and what that means is that you were expecting the food and energy component to come in so egregiously negative that it overpowers the rest of the basket now that's not completely unheard of or impossible um it's just a pretty tall order now we we go out and we actually do a little bit of a decomposition. We, we decompose almost everything and look at everything on a line by line, line item basis to be able to make sense of what's happening. Um, and what we saw was that there is very, very little likelihood that this food and energy component can come in so negative relative to housing and services. And that has to do with kind of like the more secular kind of thing. Well, not, not secular, but more like a trend kind of thing, right? Um, and so, we had a setup where it was asymmetric. All you needed to do to be able to, to surprise consensus very significantly, which basically was you had to come in with a modest positive print, right? When they were betting on deflation. Now, over the, over the history of CPI, to have consecutive back-to-back back-to-back prints of negative CPI has happened less than 3% of the entire sample set from 1965 to present. Okay, so that's that's one that's already you know against the likelihood of this happening. Then on top of that, for it to happen, you need to have a bunch of different parts of CPI confirming this. 
So if we actually look at what's happening in shelter, all the services and goods and things like that, those components were just not confirming this trend. Um, so as a result, you had this kind of asymmetry built in where, you know, consensus was expecting deflation to come entirely from food and energy. And based off our tracking of commodities, so we track commodities that are probably the most relevant to food and energy, you know, things like corn, wheat, etc., soybeans, all these things that kind of feed in and are very well correlated. It just didn't look likely to us. And, you know, we, we obviously went into the week based off our cyclical view of being short treasuries, right? Um, and that, that that just created a good opportunity for, for what, what happened today, which was that you just needed to have, you know, a small positive. At, and the only way you could, you could, you know, come in lower than consensus was to have something like negative 20 bits, which was a very, very tall order. So even if we went into today, and you know somehow CPI headline came in negative, those you would probably not lose as much for being on the wrong side of you know treasuries or equities. So that was kind of the setup for today. Now looking at the actual trend, right? What what you've seen is this broadening of uh, of inflation pressures, which has been happening for quite a while now, where you've had a handoff from goods inflation, which you know so the the chain of command is probably something like commodities and and food and things like that to um into goods and then into services and once services kind of takes off then you're in these very very strong inflationary periods so we had a very very strong you know shelter and other services components even though the energy component was extremely negative and it and, and that's kind of what the future of cpi is going to be there's going to be a balance you know, to be met between what has been happening, what will happen with commodities and, you know, other kind of parts of the energy and food basket relative to what's going to happen with um, just the shelter component and services component. Now, what, the shelter and services component are probably going to trend, on, you know, in a stable kind of and potentially rising fashion and how much the commodities component kind of disinflates, the food and energy component disinflates will determine where we land in CPI over the next few prints. Very Sorry, nice. Thank you. I loved it. No, this is very informative. And, you know, I look at it a little differently and not as in-depth as you. I love your analysis. We learn so much on these spaces. We're so grateful for you sharing your time. This is a great way to look at it. Um, you know, when I look at it, and maybe I can relate to, you know, the regular people, um, I see that the largest increases were shelter, food, and medical. And I find that very concerning because we see that with food, uh, there are a lot of shortages with droughts, um, Europe, geopolitical issues. In my opinion, the food element is not coming down for inflation. Now, according to the data, and this was shocking to me, the food index increased 11.4% over the last year the largest 12-month increase since the period ending May 1979. I mean, that's a pretty long time. It's substantial to me, and that stands out to me. Um, and then I'm seeing the shelter component. You know, I, I like to break the misinformation out there, and, and I find it, you know, very misleading when people say, oh, housing's coming down, the housing market, prices are coming down, we're going to be great with the shelter, but they don't realize that the OER, which is a derivative of the housing prices, are only calculated twice a year. And you told me that. I didn't know it was twice a year. I thought it was quarterly. And um, so that and the rents, which rents are still going up. Rents are still increasing. 
and for that calculation twice a year, and we already know real estate is a slow process. You have rising rates, which softens the real estate market. However, it takes time. And then you have the rise in inventory, which also takes time. And then once that happens, as long as there's demand is there and the buyer hasn't been turned away because of all these other issues you discussed, tightening credit, credit lending and all tightening of liquidity and real wages being down. As long as those are all okay and we have the demand, maybe the prices will start coming down and then we can say the shelter will come down. But to me, that's at least five quarters plus. So shelter and food, pretty sticky, as some people like to say. I say very elevated. And so that's very concerning to me. And then the largest decreases were the energy commodities, gas, fuel, oil. However, the energy services went up this month. Service costs are going up. And I see that trend. I try not to focus on the headline, but look at the details and the trends. So that's what popped out at me and what I noticed. So yes, very concerning report. And you know, I wanna ask you this question. Um, it's a term that's used quite often around Bloomberg and Wall Street. So I have to ask you, have we hit peak inflation yet? <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I think that this is, uh, whether we hit peak inflation on, on a year-over-year basis is not such a big deal. Um, I, I think that what matters both for the Fed and for markets is that on an ongoing basis, how much inflation are we going to to experience month to month, and you know how how much is that going to line up with you know the Fed's targets and things like that. So I, I think that the the, the thing of, of peak inflation, at least on a year-over-year basis, is is very much just playing a game of how much of the the the, the last print in the in the 12, 12 month trailing period that you're looking at is going to fall off relative to how likely it is that you're going to come in this month. And I, I don't think that that is the, the most important thing to anchor on, because you, you, if you think about it, you're you're anchoring on, you know, pretty old data. And then you're basically just comparing old data relative to some new data. And it might be an interesting exercise for a strategist to call the peak and the turning points, and then from there, you know, start adding bonds or whatever. But I think that the, the issue we're facing uh, is a little bit deeper than that. And it's it's much more about how much inflation entrenchment do we have, right? And um, that's why, you know, the, the points you're making about, about services and, and, and such are, are important. Because, so, with the, you know, if we're looking at housing, uh, the the way that that survey ends up ma making its way into to the into the CPI data is like you said it's the there's a there's a six month rotation period so you know they come to a different set of households every six months so you know they'll come to you in January and then they'll come to you six months later and ask you okay if you were to rent your house how much would you rent it for now first off there's a there's a pretty big amount of time between those two prints and second you probably are just going to anchor on your home price. Right. And as a result, this sample only rotates, you know, every half year. Uh, and it, the, the translation is that the, the, the amount of time it is basically that the amount of time it takes for 
house prices to translate into CPI is considerable. So, you know, if you ballpark it, it's somewhere between 12 to 18 months and 18 months seems to be the optimal look back window when it comes to forecasting CPI or at least owner's equivalent rent using um, housing price data. Um, I think that this, this whole thing of, you know, how, how much housing is going to trend is, is, is also just going to keep CPI elevated, right, over the next few months. And so we have this undercurrent where housing prices just aren't going to disappear over time. So at least 30% of your basket is probably going to stay elevated. So even if you have a situation where, you know, housing prices moderate a little bit, the pass-through is going to take a significant amount of time. And the Fed is not going to, you know, they're not going to say, oh, it's going to take a significant amount of time and change the policy based on that. They're going to be reacting to okay, are the month-on-month sequentials still, you know, are they still in the territory that we just can't tolerate? You know, today, today's print was, you know, evidence that, okay, we need to be tighter. And I think that even if you call the peak from 9% infl- inflation to 5%, maybe you might get some modest improvement in stocks and, and bonds potentially. But I think that the, the real issue is that, okay, even if we have that modest improvement, we're pr- still probably coming back to an inflation rate above about you know five six percent maybe four percent and that is multiples above the fed's two percent inflation target and also probably multiples above anything that's conducive to real growth so i think yeah you could call the inflation top um but will it you know be profitable for you or will it inform you about the path i, I don't know Agree. I love that because everyone seems to use that word so often. And I think that's not the issue here. Um, and I agree with you. Thank you. So in the CPI report, as we're looking at it now, we already established that food most likely isn't coming down right away. And as we know, shelter, very unlikely. What areas do you think are the saving grace for us to help bring us down closer to the range we need to be well i i think that it's energy right uh i think that you can have what you're having in that gas right continue and you could have you know further breakdowns so what one thing that the fed is doing right is that they they are they are causing a significant so if you look at say household balance sheets or corporate balance sheets you're beginning to see a significant contraction in those right so home prices feed into feed into balance sheets as well um so now you create, if you can create a situation where you actually impair nominal demand enough, right, you will actually start to see kind of a lower lowering of, of cost just generally and also demand pressures everywhere. So I, I think that it's it's less about which particular part is going to be my saving grace. And I think it's more about, you know, can we curb nominal demand and can we curb nominal demand while keeping, while keeping grill demand positive? But that's pretty unlikely. Right. So I, I think the trajectory that we're on is that we're, we're in what we call stagflationary nominal growth. And um, probably how we're going to transition is we're going to move from stagflationary nominal growth to outright stagflation. And that so you're going to have a, a fall off in nominal demand. And at the same time, you're going to have a fall off in real demand. And the, the combination of those things is going to take you into outright stagflation. At that point, you're in a very difficult environment because you're, you're, you're in a period when, you know, real demand is negative, which means that your, your real output is probably going to start contracting and the, the, 
the option businesses are going to have is basically to lay off their workers. Now, when you when you start doing that, you create like this self-reinforcing dynamic where okay, we we fi- we fired some workers. There's less real demand. Okay, there's less real demand. There's less real output needs, and you keep this kind of circle up. So when when the labor market gets going, it really gets going. I don't think most people appreciate how important the labor market is at the, the current junction because everyone talks about you know labor markets being kind of a lagging indicator, but if you actually look at what, the only thing that's keeping up real income today, it's the labor market. So if you decompose total income, where does it come from? It comes from employment, it comes from the number of hours worked, and it comes from the amount of real wage that you make. Real wages are negative. Today we got a really big print on that as well, and you know that on a year-over-year basis are negative too. The hours worked are negative as well. So the only thing that's keeping up real incomes, right, for employees, which is the biggest part of you know spending in the economy, is is employment growth. Now, this has, this is in context of one of the tightest labor markets on history, and you have the Fed moving to contract balance sheets for companies alongside negative real sales. So the whole outlook is basically, you know, kind of, the, you know, the macro landscape is kind of coming together to tell you that, okay, the likely trajectory is lower in real growth alongside nominal growth. But because we're already on such a low base of real growth, we're probably going to go into outright stagflation. Um, and this, this is going to be a very difficult environment for the Fed because once the labor market starts going to the negative, right, they, people don't realize how fast this moves. Like the labor market moves during upside or during recessionary or pre-recessionary periods are five times, like five times the magnitude of a regular move, which means that suddenly things are going to get real bad real quick and people are going to be like, oh my God, it's happening. And that, at that point, if you cannot contract nominal demand, so if the Fed is not successful in contracting nominal demand, you're going to still have inflation and you're going to have a problem in labor. And that's the choice that we're headed towards for them, right? How, how are we going to deal with outright stagflation and what choices are we likely to make? Exactly. Perfectly said. We have slow growth. And it's continuing, especially within the tightening conditions and rising rates. Um, we have high, we have the high inflation, as we've seen, and we just discussed that it's going to probably stay prolonged at this point, um, with food and shelter not coming down much anytime soon. And then with the weakness that we see with the real demand, there's going to be less need for workers as there is less output, which we've already experienced with our business, and I'll get into that later. So you have the recipe for stagflation, textbook classic definition. So the Fed is inducing this stagflation, um, and how can we get out of it is my question. And then what type of time period do you have an estimation of if we go into that situation, which looks very likely? Do you have an idea of time period for that? Right. So this is just the thing. So we're we're pretty we're pretty high frequency in our approach. So you know every day we get new data, and we we process that and we we make sense of. It. So you know we have good visibility about a week out. We don't have good visibility six months out. That's just not something that we're good. Now, in in, in a quantitative sense, from you know from my perspective. Um, and this is just my opinion, so grain of salt, obviously, maybe a handful of it. Um, but I think that 
how long we stay in this environment will depend on the Fed's ability and willingness to keep us in a contractionary period. Right. So I, I think that everyone likes to anchor on what Volcker did. Right. So, you know, Volcker was the great man who broke the back of inflation. And it's true. But what people forget is that he actually eased off the gas. Right. So he, he actually went into a cutting cycle while inflation was still elevated. And that was because he won. He saw the he saw the abatement of inflation. But also at the same time, there's a huge amount of pain that happened when you enter these stagflationary periods. Um, so I think that how long we actually stay in this environment depends on the Fed's ability to to combat this. And based off the Fed that we've seen, you know, in, uh, you know, from Powell over, you know, the 2018 period when he reversed his wear on autopilot, and et cetera, et cetera. The, the likelihood is that I think that the Fed will not be able to stomach the amount of pain that's needed to be able to bring nominal demand in line with real output. Um, and as a result, you could be in a situation which is just really hard on traditional allocations, which is why, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, talk about this today, because I think that it doesn't get enough coverage, that most people expect us to just go back to the way it was. And, you know, that would be a good thing, because, you know, my, it's not like my, my strategies will only perform in stagflation. They'll do well in most environments, hopefully all of them, but, you know, um, you never know. But... That being said, I, I think that what is not expected by general, like everyone keeps waiting for when we're going to get back to the regular world that we've seen over the last 20 years. But by creating this, you know, this monetary fiscal impulse, you, you've changed the world very dramatically, right? And you've changed what you can do also. So you look, you look at what, you know, what's happening with policy now. The first thing they went to to fight the pain that we're having is to spend more money via fiscal, right? And, um, we're in this dynamic now of probably more fiscal dominance. And so I, I, I know it's not exactly the answer you're probably looking for in terms of timing, but I think that whether the Fed can stay this course of tightening conditions and tightening the amount of credit that's available to be able to cool down nominal demand enough, that's, how, that's what's going to decide whether we're going to get out of this. Now, if the Fed comes out and says, okay, we've done a lot of tightening and we're still at three, you know, three percent ish inflation, right? And real growth, you know, ticks up to two percent. We're still not in a great situation because what you have is the, the joint pie of nominal growth still outpacing real output significantly. And you know, just by if you think about it from the expect from the from the perspective of if you compound five percent nominal relative to two percent um two percent output growth, right, you continue to have larger and larger inflation. Right? So it's just mathematically we're in a tougher situation. So the likelihood of us getting out of this without the Fed being extremely aggressive is is pretty low. Wow. That's harsh reality check. I love it. I think well, that's great and I appreciate your answer in that. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, I'm not trying to be a, a downer for anyone, but I, uh, I think that what I'm trying to do is for people is, I want to highlight, I, it would be great if I'm completely wrong about these things, right? Like, and, and you know, we get data every day, we refresh every day. So it, it would be wonderful to see things turn in the absolute other direction. But, you know, we have forecasts for various things. We have forecasts of the growth cycle. We have forecasts of the inflation cycle, all these things. And, you know, put together, the picture con continues to just, you know, evolve in the direction of our transition is going to be towards stagflation. And then if we 
stay on this path, then this transition will be to deflation eventually. But, you know, deflation, or should I say disinflation, is not the same as out outright deflation. And it, it's just going to be a very difficult environment for most traditional allocations, right? So if you're a 60-40 stock bond kind of person or whatever, you know, if you have, even if you think you have a diversified set of stocks, um, like I was saying earlier, the, the performance we've seen of stocks and bonds and the correlation of stocks and bonds is not a feature of the asset classes. It's a feature of the sample set that you pick, which is basically the economic environment that you're in. So now if we go and, and say, okay, the, the combination of stocks and bonds, what is it? Stocks like rising real growth. Bonds like disinflation or deflation, right? So both of them, both of them like disinflation and, and they have different biases for growth. You put those together, what you basically have is one big bet on inflation coming down, which has been a spectacular bet for 40 years. The question is, are you willing to put that bet on today? And, you know, for, 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 for our part of Prometheus, we aren't. You know, we've been, we've been shorting these things and it's been quite, it's been, you know, decent, pretty good for us. You know, I'll say it's been pretty good for us. And we continue to think that's going to be pretty good for us. So it, this is not to get people to, to short stocks outright. It's to think about, okay, what are the exposures that in this kind of environment, if I were to look at, oh, say the period of the 60s or the 70s, how would I have survived that as an investor? Because there's no way that you want negative 7% real returns, right? So that's, that's really the message that I'm trying to bring you. Excellent. I appreciate your truth and candor. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it's, it's important to understand, to, to know what's going on. And that, for me, that's very important. I, I like to be aware, it, whether it seems positive or negative, it's more important to me to align myself properly with, within these conditions. And I think you hit the nail on the head. So it makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned the word different world. And I also use that term. I feel like we're in a new world being a CFO of a manufacturing business here in New York. Um, and I supply businesses with equipment for production of goods. So I see that from that side of it, I feel we're in a different world. So from the macroeconomic side of what you're seeing, does it appear to you that a higher inflation rate, higher than 2%, may have to be the new norm yeah so I, I think that that's going to be one of the biggest questions that policy is probably going to have to deal with right like there is no magic to two percent like there's there's nothing that just it, it's it's a number somebody picked that was good relative to to growth right so i i don't think that this 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 target of two percent necessarily is something that's just oh empirically it's the best maybe empirically it's the best but I, I think that the question that's going to be in front of the Fed and going to be in front of people in general is that, okay, are we, we're, we're probably going to be in a higher inflation environment than 2%. And does it even make sense, given the monetary excesses that we've built, does it make sense to target a lower rate, right? Like, the, does it make sense to erode activity to the extent that we have to, to get below, you know, 3% or 4% to get to 2%. And that's going to be a trade-off that they're going to have to make. So it's, it's one of two things in front of them. They're going to have to say, oh, never mind. 2% um, was, was a different world. We entered this era of fiscal QE type stuff, and it's changed stuff, and the labor market is unbelievably tight, and maybe we have to be at 2 you know, at 
And that is a completely different world. Um, because what that means is that, okay, we're going we're gonna to stop on tightening, but we're going to let these kind of stagflationary nominal growth pressures continue to, continue to hold. As a result, the, the asset cost returns you're going to see are going to be completely different. Wow. That is if that plays Wonderful. out like that. Yes. Oh, well, that's definitely a very plausible scenario. Um, so taking all this information that you have, now the most important thing for, I think, most of us listening is the market's reaction. I think most of us here are investors, traders. So we're most interested to see taking all this macro yeah. and what do you anticipate the Fed next week, September 21st, will decide, in your opinion, based upon everything you've seen, and do you think they're going to maintain the 75 basis points? Um, and what do you think the market, market's reaction will be? You saw the market reaction today. What do you think going into next week and the next couple of weeks? Um, so the way we're positioned right now is, is still for more of the same. I, you know, from my, from my perspective, I don't spend too much time um, looking at what the Fed is going to say, I, I like we discussed, you know, earlier, I, I kind of, um, the way Prometheus is built is to, is to focus on how, you know, economic pressures are going to evolve. So that, that forced the Fed to do things rather than worry about what the Fed is going to do at a given period of time. So, uh, you know, top of my head, I'd probably say, yeah, they go 75. Um, and given what just happened with CPI, they're probably going to stay the path of, oh, well, you know, we're, we're in this, you know, for a while and we're willing to do whatever it takes. I think that Powell, you know, came came back out to soften the blow of what he did in Jackson Hole, which I think was honestly just, uh, it was a little bit of a weak hand from him. Um, and I think that he'll probably, you know, reinforce his message that we're going to do higher for longer and do whatever's necessary to be able to curb inflation. Um, and yeah, I, so that, that's kind of my take on the Fed. Um, I think more more generally speaking, they're just in a, they have a very difficult time ahead of them. Um, with markets, um, we continue to stay. We've been shorting treasuries, um, and we continue. So today's been a very good day for that. You know, last week was decent. We think cash and the dollar are probably the best trades. We've had the dollar on alongside commodities. You know, starting Q1, we've held dollar exposures all year. Um, and I, I think that you know, if you have that ability to be able to, because the way we think about the dollar is kind of like active. Um, active cash management. So it's it's a good way to scoop up, you know, additional returns if you know how to trade the dollar well. Um, and that's kind of how we've been positioned. But in terms of beta, we're taking nothing. Right now, we probably have like a 7% exposure to commodities. The largest exposure we have by far is the dollar and which we're, you know, followed by that on the short side treasuries. We've been neutral on equities this week. Um, I expect that equities and, and treasuries will both just stay short. Very nice. Thank you. How are you trading the dollar? Could you explain that, please? So when it comes to the dollar, we, we have a two-fold approach, right? Um, and um, I'm not sure if we're about to run up on time. Um, is it one? We can go over an hour if, oh, we, if, it's, if it works for you. Yeah, it works for me. I was just wondering if they, uh, they, uh, they stop you out or something. Uh, no, we can go as long as you want. Maybe we'll be here till tonight. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We can go on, please. This is very fascinating. Yeah, yeah, let's, uh, we can keep going for sure. Um, so you were asking me about the dollar, right? So the the dollar is uh, is a unique is a, is a unique asset 
in that unlike all the other things that we've, we've discussed, there is a, a risk premium to owning other assets, right? So for example, when I own stocks, it, I get compensated for taking on a certain kind of risk, right? I get, uh, for, you know, the potential default or the bankruptcy of the company and things like that. But when it comes to the dollar, there's no real risk premium other than the fact that, you know, the, the, the sovereign might default, but that's almost not existent in the U.S. So for the most part, I tend to own carry, but I also own money when there are more inflows into the dollar relative to other, you know, other countries. Um, sorry, into the U.S. relative to other countries. Now, the, the, the fact is that the, the, the dollars remains, you know, irrespective of what, you know, might be happening on a secular basis, the dollar remains the most dominant safe haven, both because of treasuries and because of the quality of EPS in, in the United States and FX stability, right? So you, during these periods of risk off, you tend to have large flows to the dollar. And also alongside that, right, when you have um, what we call tightening liquidity conditions, right, so you have funding liquidity, you know, drying up because the monetary policy is becoming more, is becoming outright restrictive and fiscal policy is becoming, you know, less, less, less positive than earlier. You tend to have very sharp and strong rallies in the dollar. So basically, you have a situation where cash, you know, money tends to flow into into the dollar relative to all the risk assets, and you have this bid up. So when we think about the dollar, we really think about it as okay, like if we use active timing timing tools, can we generate a little bit more than we would be able to generate on cash? Now, for most people, that's probably not always the best thing, unless you're willing to be nimble and trade the dollar pretty often. Um, you know, and when we when we think about the dollar, we think about it against you know the major pairs. So we think about you think Aussie, we think dollar yen, we think uh, you know cable things like that. Um, but broader dollar index is a is a good deal, or even UUP. Um, that's that's a, that's a decent proxy. Um, and really, what 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 it is is it's it's a protection against tightening liquidity conditions. So you know, if you if you if you were to make a balanced you know a risk balanced set of assets, right? Um, this year, you would be in pretty serious negative territory. So even if I owned, even if I own commodities, but I own them in a risk balanced way relative to my stocks and bonds and gold, um, I would be in negative territory. But on the other hand, if I if I was if I was trading the dollar or even if I was in cash, on a relative basis, I would have outperformed. And that's kind of how we're thinking about it. So you know, you can think about dollar for us as active cash. You can think about um, as cash relative to assets as another way of thinking about it. Very nice, thank you. And then you mentioned that you are seven percent of your portfolio is in commodities. Yeah. Um, can you explain how you trade the commodities? Do you do that through ETFs or any other way of trading them? So, so, so a, l- a little bit of both. So, um, the the commodity ETFs are good, but they're expensive. So, you know, you have to. You, I mean, some people are only limited to ETFs. So, we try to provide our research coverage so that people, you know, who we try to provide something for everyone, basically. So, you know, commodity ETFs, um, some of them are better at replicating um, the individual commodity exposures than others. Um, I believe the Terricium funds are, are pretty decent, but they're fairly expensive. They have a 2% management fee. So you, you have to know that on an annualized basis, you're going to at least beat that, which you probably will given this environment. Um, but so that's the ETF side. On the other side, you can, you know, if you're a futures trader, you, you have an abundance of, uh, of, uh, of opportunities to trade this. Um, now, if you if you don't do either of those things, it, you can have a tilt or a large size relative uh, uh, relative to commodity for commodity equities. 
So, you know, things like the energy sector and things like that, or maybe specific single names and all of these things. So, and if I, if I have the opportunity to go long short, you know, I can, I can isolate my commodity exposure by going long, say energy equities uh, relative to a short of just, you know, outright equities, which basically just captures the difference between energy and, uh, you know, so I end up getting that energy exposure inadvertently. Um, so these are, these are all the different ways to play it. Um, and, you know, it just depends on who you are and what you're trying to do. Thank you so much. Now, could you please tell us the services that you offer through Prometheus Research? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Thank you. Um, I've had a lot of fun discussing all this stuff with you. Um, so I, uh, we, we provide, we provide free, free research for, uh, for everyone right now. You can go check us out on Substack. Um, free? Wait, everyone, you got to hear this. Free research okay this is amazing free you have to go to prometheus site please tell us how this is amazing free okay i love that it's, word uh, so it's uh it's prometheus research um i think it's for me uh let me get even the name oh that's funny so it's prometheus research.substack.com um we we you know we're trying to cater to a retail audience so we're trying to make this so that everyone can do it or at least you know have make it as useful as possible to everyone. Um, so it's free. We, we publish near daily. Um, it's really just a, a function of, okay, are, are our systems kind of turning over and telling us something relevant or not? And so we have near daily coverage. Um, every, you know, weekend we publish the week ahead, which kind of sets you up really well for one, how we systematically position for next week. Um, we also, you know, provide, if we have it for a particular thing, we'll provide you forecasts and, and things like that. So basically, it's a, a one-stop shop for, okay, how am I going to trade this week? We do a podcast, which is only available through um, through Substack, also completely free. You know, we, we try to get on some really cool guys. We had on some Twitter famous fellas. Um, we had Darius Dale, Mr. Blonde, Macro Elf. We have some other really cool guys lined up. Who And, you know, we really focus on trying to get you to understand how we think about investing, how they think about investing and things like that. So that, you know, it's more of a, we're going to show you how to do this as opposed to this, are, these are my market polls for next week. Um, and uh, yeah, we also have separate bespoke services. So that's a more, so for me, this bespoke is a, is a client to, it's a, it's a bespoke tailored kind of relationship between clients. You know, if you're interested, you can reach out via DM or you can email me um, through Substack or, you know, my, my, my email uh, is should be available by Substack as well. But yeah, that's that's all the things. <laughs> that is so nice of you, so kind, brilliant, and so generous with your time. Truly yeah. appreciate that. I really and appreciate I, your time, Rosanna. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is there anything else you wanted to add before I go into my boring, long, laborious <laughs> statement? No, I, I, I well, I just want everyone to, to make sure to go and give you a follow. You're an excellent presence on Twitter and you highlight very good things. So, you know, anyone that's here, I should definitely follow you. Thank you. And likewise with you, please, everyone follow Prometheus Research. He, obviously, Ahan is amazing, not only so brilliant. And, you know, I'm going to go and just speak about how these macroeconomic factors affect Main Street, affect the business. Um, now, although they're backward looking, the CPI report, we know that inflation numbers are backward looking. Um, you know, the Fed does use this data in making their decisions. So I agree with Ahan, um, a Prometheus, founder of Prometheus Research. 
I do think they're probably going to go 75 basis points. Um, I know that's on everyone's mind. Everyone was wondering. I have not wavered from that since July. Um, and I dissected myself that Jackson Hole speech. And I, the part that really, you know, his three lessons that he looks back from the 70s and 80s, how it's their job to lower inflation and they got to keep at it until it's done. But number two, the avoiding entrenchment. And you mentioned that. I love that word because it's so important. I think people tend to miss the concept there. We don't want high inflation accepted as the norm because when that happens, household and financial decisions are impacted as well as wage and price settings. So it's very important that we lower and fight this inflation aggressively to avoid the entrenchment. Now, um, with our business, we've noticed an increase in revenues about three to 5% since last year, mostly due to higher prices, inflation, revenues due to inflation rather than higher output and volume. So right there, exactly as Ahan said, we're seeing the real demand come down. And I have had lower output. My workforce, and I'll tell you, in the New York area, I've had my choice. We've had the record number of applicants. Um, and I'll go into why, because a lot of people have had the question, why? How is this happening in New York? Um, but yes, we've had a need for less workers. We've been, we've been growing. We're a different type of business. We adapt. We sell to all different industries. Um, but I'll go into that in a second, too. Um, our cost of goods sold and operating expenses are up about 25 to 30%. That calculates to margins being significantly compressed. Now, that's due to the rise in cost of capital, labor, production. We know that, cost plus inflation. And then a reduction in productivity. We're getting less output per dollar. There's just a dilution of value. There's a big difference in disparity between the nominal and real, as Ahan so eloquently discussed. Um, so with our business, and we're very fortunate to be on the forefront of manufacturing, and we sell to all industries. Uh, we have uh, thermal engineering, stainless steel tank products, um, equipment. We sell business to business. So we actually supply manufacturers. We manufacture the equipment and we apply, we supply other businesses that produce goods. So we see exactly what's occurring in the actual production. And I've noticed a significant slowdown since quarter one. And we're going to go back to, we got to do a template like Ahan did. I had to go back to COVID and what's going on there. Now there was a, and New York was very strict. We were the, COVID epicenter. And so a lot of businesses were forced to close down. In order to be classified an essential business, you had very strict guidelines. Now, being that we already have a product that's adaptable to most industries, and we sell from everywhere from consumer discretionary to industrial to military, Fortune 500 companies. I have NASA as a client. I also have Yankee Candle as a client. I have all over. So we were able to adapt our equipment to make hand sanitizer equipment. Now, you can see that was probably in high demand during that time period. So we adapted, we changed our marketing, became very creative and adaptable. We survived 2008, we adapted, 
basically horizontally and vertically integrated. We grew our market share and we were going to do that again. And we did. So we stayed open because we created, we built equipment to make hand sanitizer. Um, I know it's pretty cool, right? I, well, at least I think so. But okay. So okay. thank you. Thank you. So what happened during that time period? All these businesses were closed, mostly in, in all over, probably they had closings, but in New York, they were closed down. So they were infused with money. They were given stimulus money. They were giving money to their personal income. However, there was no labor and no production. Well, that has repercussions. You got to pay the piper sometime. So now we're seeing a backlash from post from COVID, the post-COVID backlash, I call it, and as well as this inflationary macro environment. So we're seeing lots of small businesses closing down. And thus, a lot of these workers are coming into the workforce. Plus, other businesses are reducing their books. They're reducing their payroll because, as Ahan said, the real demand is down. So there's less need for workers. I, I, I like to think of New York as tend to be the forefront of things. A lot of things come through New York first. We have an Empire State Manufacturing Index based on New York. So obviously New York is a pretty large market and significantly important. Um, so that's what I'm noticing. Now also, it's interesting, the type of businesses we sold to were startups during stimulus time when everyone was getting money people were at home and saying hey i'm going to take this money and start a business so they bought our equipment we had probably i'd say 60 to 70 percent of sales were startups that's significant and a lot of them were making consumer discretionary products and there was a rise in goods purchased we all know that during covid people stayed home and shopped so people were buying goods and then we also, um, and a lot of those consumer discretionary items were soap, candles, and other little items. Um, and then our business is able to adapt for the different times. For example, during the Trump administration, when there was a lot of oil rigs and a lot of oil drilling, we sold equipment for the lubrication companies, the ones that would lubricate those rigs. They use, I think, soap sticks, they're called. And then during the war recently, we sell mostly to the aerospace. We saw a huge rise in the aerospace industry, Lockheed Martin. In other words, they're, they're using it for turbine engines, they're coding the turbine engines. Uh, I'm not the tech, I'm not the engineer in the company, I'm the CFO, so I don't know all the details of that. Um, but I have noticed a big shift this past year and who we sell to and different sectors. So we're selling now to mostly large companies, medium to large. Small businesses are a small fraction. What a change in a year and a half, two years. So now we have companies that are more immune to the inflationary tightening macro environment, larger companies. And the sectors are industrials, medical, consumer staples, food, chocolate, candy. Yeah, you, chocolate and candy are pretty staple, so people need that, you know? Um, so, yeah, you know. Just to chime in for a second, you know, like, I think this yeah. is also really important because from a from a sector perspective, right, like what you're talking about is very much reflected in what we're seeing in like expected returns. So, um, you know, like, like I said, we have, uh, 
we, we track expected returns for, you know, the 11 equity sectors. Um, and um, what, well, since, since January, we've seen like consumer, we've seen consumer, consumer discretionary and uh, communication, which both are basically lofty valuations and more tech. You know, you know, you have Amazon and Tesla and consumer discretionary basket and things like that. Um, but you, those companies, they, 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 they became shorts around then. And what you're seeing is still very much the case. Like the bigger shorts that you want to press are things that need liquidity to survive, right? That, that they don't have a large amount of like cash flow, which is really just a function of their ability to preserve pricing power. So staples, you know, during this environment, so staples and energy, they're actually the two longs that you could consider if you're an equity only investor um, and you have to hold some beta. Um, so yeah, I think that that, 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 that picture you're painting is really useful because it also tells you from the bottom up what you're seeing in you know our kind of regime map is that okay the, the places that have pricing power are probably the ones that on a relative basis are probably going to outperform. I love that. Thank you. Please interrupt me all the time. You didn't really interrupt me, but please come in. I love that because see that's exactly reflective of the areas in the market where you can look for some type of growth because it's those industries that are still producing that are still creating manufacturing these necessary items and of course we need food and we do need energy so those are the industries i'm noticing that are purchasing our products for example here's an interesting company i'm not going to name them but this is the product that they bought our equipment for making this okay you know those little seals on vitamin bottles or any type of supplement that little top little piece of paper there's that glue that sticks that paper to the top it sticks that paper to the top of the bottle well the company that makes that glue it seems like there's only one or two of them bought our equipment i was like i never even knew that existed so it's really cool i'm always learning adapting and growing and um i'm so grateful to be in the business i'm in and I'm learning about all these different things. And being a trader, an options trader, that's really what I am, an investor, I'm always learning as well. So with business, I find that really fascinating. So, yeah, there's a company that makes the glue that goes on that top for the vitamins. And I'm proud to say they bought our equipment. So um, we also recently sold to uh, some company that's wax coating lithium metal anodes. So it's really cool and metal molding and casting. So you see the type of industries that are purchasing and they're rather large companies. Um, so, you know, I always say there's a silver lining in everything. And these times are opportunistic times. Um, I want to end this on a positive note because you know what? I'm a positive person. Ahan, you're a very positive person as well. You're just giving us reality because this is, this is how it is, you know, and um, there's opportunities. And we need to have patience, but these are opportunistic times. And for our business, we're growing market share. Their business is closing. It's unfortunate, but it's part of the process. These are business cycles. They're economic cycles. They're market cycles and they're business cycles. Businesses, you know, the economy contracts and then it expands. So these are times where businesses are closing, they're downsizing. And because we weren't forced to close, I think we have some, you know, a little bit more of an advantage at this point. And we're able to vertically and horizontally integrate. And we are looking at making some small or medium-sized acquisitions, um, maybe adding some more in the supply chain line at, closer to the raw material side. 
And, um, you know, I always just see it as opportunity. So there's always opportunity and we just need to look for it and never push any trades or anything, but um, just know that things will get better and we will get through this as we always have, whether the 20s, 30s and 40s, the 70s and 80s, uh, 2008, 2000, um, there's always uh, something positive to look forward to. So Ahan, I've had the utmost pleasure of having this space with you. You are brilliant. And you know what you remind me of? Everyone bear with me. I, I did a major, I did a double major, but one of my majors was uh, ancient Greek philosophy. And I love Prometheus because he brings knowledge to the people. Um, but this, speaking with Ahan, reminds me of one of my favorite philosophers, Socrates. And the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. And Ahan, you make me feel that way. So thank <laughs> you so much for, thank you for enlightening us. This has been truly enlightening and we really appreciate you so much. Likewise, likewise, I, and thank you so much. And you know, let's, uh, let's do this again. Absolutely. Fun. And everyone sign up for the free research. That's worth like so much. It's, like priceless. it's priceless. That's why it's free because it's priceless. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful day and just we'll, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.